Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, March 10th. Calgary and Edmonton have joined forces to explore a bid to bring the Commonwealth Games to Alberta. Is this a worthwhile investment for the province and what would be the cost to Albertans? We pose those questions to sports economist and economics professor at Concordia University, Moshe Lander. How concerned should parents be about the amount of time kids are spending online and what are the potential health consequences of social media addiction? We explore new research on the topic from the University of Montreal with PhD candidate at the School of Psychoeducation at U of M, Kinoush Herendian. This is not the first time Calgarians have been concerned about gun violence. Today on the show, we chatted with Global's senior crime reporter and host of the Crime Beat podcast and TV show, Nancy Hickst. Nancy told us about the latest two-part episode of Crime Beat Season 5 just released, featuring the gang war and senseless violence that terrified the city back in 2009. How much time are you or anyone in your life spending staring at a screen and scrolling through social media? Well, according to research from the University of Montreal, social media addiction is a real issue among young adults and can lead to negative health consequences. Joining us to talk about it is Kinoush Harendian, who is a PhD candidate at the School of Psychoeducation at the University of Montreal. Good morning to you, Kinoush. Thanks so, so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So, okay, we're not going to stop our kids, ourselves, from being on social media. That that horse is out of the barn already. So no matter how much we might want it, we should probably just understand it in the least, right? So it, truly, people can be addicted to social media? Yes, uh, it's absolutely a thing. And I think it's also, uh, we need to notice that it's more of a scale than it is like a boundary of, you are addicted or you're not addicted. There is a whole range of it. And I think it's important for us to notice how much time we're spending on social media and whether we're able to lower that amount of time. So before we get into sort of, you know, time numbers and amounts, what are some of the most significant ways that social media addiction can actually impact the lives of teens and young adults that you've seen? Yeah, so the most recent trends that we're seeing across Canada and the U.S. is um, increases in serious mental distress um, during adolescence and early adulthood, uh, which can have uh, more depressive symptoms, more self-harm, more suicidal thoughts, lower life satisfaction, and sleep loss, which are really the major things we're seeing here uh, when we spend so much time on social media. Do we know the why for any of that? Is it because young people particularly, but I mean a lot of us, doesn't matter what age you are, you see other people's lives and everything just seems so perfect. Is, is that sort of it that we, are, we look at our own lives and go, oh, I'm, I can never measure up to that? Yeah, there's part of it that's that, and also that adolescence itself is a developmental crisis, and social media comes and aggravates this crisis. And so these people that are well into their 20s can um, be more susceptible to the acceptance and the rejection of their peers, which makes them very responsive to social media and emotionally addicted to it. And, and the advertising that's on there and, and frankly, a lot of the BS that's put out there as well. So uh, one of the other effects you mentioned um, is sleep. Can you talk a bit about the relationship between social media use and sleep? Why this is a big one we need to address? Yeah, so a lot of the times when we spend um, time on social media, it's often out of boredom or habit and we just keep scrolling and scrolling because the algorithms of these platforms are made to be addictive. And so this takes away from our sleep at night. This takes away, we're just in bed scrolling and even the blue light of our phone can have uh, negative impacts on sleep. And so we take away from sleep and this sleep deprivation can also lead to more depressive symptoms. And so it's just a circular um, motion of depressive symptoms and sleep loss that just keeps 
um, giving into each other. With your research, what do you mean algorithms are meant to be addictive? What does that mean? So a lot like how tobacco is meant to be addictive, they create these algorithms which just keep you interested and keep you scrolling. So once upon a time, Instagram, you could only scroll a certain amount before it ended and there was nothing left. And now you can keep scrolling forever. And then it also notices your likes and just feeds exactly. you more of and it, right? And it targets ads for you and it gives you what you want to see and what you'd be more interested in. Let's talk about how it can disrupt the social life or mood of a young people and frankly an older person too. It's kind of irrelevant, the age, but I know you you strictly were studying young people. So the social life, how can, how can social media addiction disrupt that? Yeah, so um, in social media addiction or just a lot of time spent on social media, we take away from our offline lives and we just spend a lot of time online, which doesn't necessarily give us the ability to develop the social skills we need to make social connections out there in the real world. And so we can have a hard time managing emotions out in the real world, which could lead to negative relationships out there. It can lead to impact our work as well. And so we're just not, we don't have the same tools as we used to have to go into the real world and make social connections. And then the ones that we maintain online are not necessarily of the same quality as the ones that we would have offline. Mm -hmm. I can totally relate to that. And my kids are, it's very difficult to get kids, my kids anyway, and maybe others are like this, to, you know, look somebody in the eye, shake a hand, because they are not doing that as much. It's everything's done sort of through the the, the device in their hands. So, you know, on that note, what advice do you give to parents, teachers, healthcare providers who are, you know, trying to help our young people manage their social media use? Yeah, I think... What we want to do is that we want to challenge people to really notice how much time they're spending on social media. So if you can, over the weekend, try to limit your screen time that's spent for leisure activities. So your social media, you're watching television, and try to limit it to 30 minutes a day. And I tried this myself, and I found it so difficult. And I think that's when it really clicked for me that, wow, maybe I have a bit of a problem here. So try just limiting 30 minutes per day. You can do it in 10-minute intervals and see if you're able to do it. Oof. And parents, if you're out there listening, do it with your kids because modeling the behavior is really the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. That's a tough one, though, isn't it? That's a that's going to be a big change for a whole lot of people. Are there yeah. any uh, promising strategies, interventions that you've come across in your research that you, you'd recommend? So this is really one of them. Limiting your screen time can have so many positive impacts on your life. And you're reinvesting this time into other activities, which are much better for you, such as going outside for a run or spending time as a family. Let's say you want to, you play board games. Well, it's nice family time as well. So just changing off the activities for something different, it's going to have a lot of positive impacts out there. This all began, this conversation with you began with an article in The Conversation focusing on social media's impact on youth. They're not the only ones who have an addiction, though. Your findings, obviously, we can attribute them to to we as adults too, right? Yes, definitely. I think what we're trying to focus on is teens because of this uh, biologically driven vulnerability that they have, but this definitely applies to everyone. It's tough because we're in the middle of winter, it's cold out, kids aren't getting outside as much as they might be in the nicer weather. And, you know, I've got one child who he has a lot of online friends. They don't go to his school, so he spends time, you know, whether it's playing games with them or just kind of chatting. So it's it's tough, isn't it? I mean, it, it's an ongoing battle. I don't think it's one we're ever going to win. Yeah, I think it's, it's about monitoring it and moderating the amount of time that we spent on it. And making sure that the kids are healthy while they're still doing it. Because, yeah, it is it's it is their way of communication. So it, it's different for us as adults yeah. for, for what it's like for them now, right? 
Exactly. And we also want to make sure that the time that we are spending in person with them, we're spending them device free. So we put the phones away while we're having dinner and we put the phones away while we're having a conversation with them. Absolutely. I love it. This is a great conversation. Thank you so much, Kinoosh. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Kinoosh Harandian is a PhD candidate at the School of Psychoeducation at the University of Montreal. I know I'm guilty of it. I'm curious as to, you know, how many of you keep track. I mean, your phone will keep track of your usage. Mine, I get a message every week. It says your usage is up, your usage is down. I'm curious how many people kind of keep track of it or know how much time they're spending on social media. And do you track your kids? Do you have a time where, you know, you've got your internet set to go off at at night? Because I have that. Otherwise, I've got one who would stay up all night chatting online. It's a tough call. It is our world right now. And it's, it's not going to change. But I guess it's just a matter of, you know, how do we control it? How do we keep things in check? And, and, and just keeping an eye on our kids and our grandkids too, right? And making sure that they're in a good place because it can be a, a nasty world on online social media. There's, you know, group chats within schools. I know from experience talking to the principal at my kid's school, there are bullying, you know, cases going on in these group chats. And I think, you know, we really need to keep control and keep an eye on it at least. We're not going to stop it. So we need to at least be aware of exactly what's going on. And yeah, for sure, phones down at dinner or any time that you're together as a family. I think that's super key. What could it cost Albertans to bring the Commonwealth Games to our province? And is the price tag worth the investment? Joining us to talk about it and crunch some numbers, we're joined this morning by Moshe Lander, economics professor at Concordia, Concordia University. Good morning to you, Professor. How are you? Good morning. Pleasure to chat with you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, if we did put on the Commonwealth Games, we're talking about sort of a, a combo of Calgary and Edmonton. Do we have any true idea of the price tag attached to a bid like this? Not at all. So it's all a matter of what do you include as part of the cost of the games and what do you include as part of putting on the games but really wasn't necessary for the games. So I'll give you an example. Let's say that as part of the games, the city of Calgary decides to extend the blue line and finally connect it to the airport. Is that a cost of putting on the games? Is that a cost of trying to make it easier for athletes to get from the airport to where the games are being staged? Or is that just merely an infrastructure project that's going to be wrapped up as part of putting on the game. So it's hard to tell whether we're going to include that cost or not. And even if we can decide whether to include it or not, that blue line is going to last forevermore. Mm. So do we include it all as the cost of the games or just a fraction in the year in which the games are put on? It's a real mess. It really, and I mean, just studying this, just the, the studying phase is going to cost millions. Yeah, and that's exactly it. It's because you're going to basically go to a consultant and you're going to give them some parameters of what you want them to try and analyze. And then they're going to have to take their time trying to assess what is the actual construction cost of that blue line extension. And of course, I'm just mentioning that one, but you can imagine that in Calgary alone, off the top of my head as a Calgary resident, I'd like to see a solution to the Saddle Dome, Fieldhouse, McMahon Stadium, Mm -hmm. blue line, green line. Uh, let's say a bullet train to connect to Edmonton has been in the talk for years, maybe some sort of bullet train to connect to the Rockies, which has been in discussion for years. So all of these things then are going to be things that have to be rolled into should we do this as part of hosting. Now add that Edmonton is also involved and they have their laundry list as well. So on that note, does that help then get some of these projects perhaps you know, going if we decide that we are going to take on the Commonwealth Games? I think if Calgary and Edmonton want to pursue the games, that's the way that they should approach it. In terms of talking about economic benefits and all of the tourism dollars and stuff like that, 
that's always going to be over-promised and under-delivered, unfortunately. But if they view it as the reason why we want to host the Games is because both cities have this huge list of infrastructure projects, and by going for the Games, it'll unlock federal dollars, mm-hmm. provincial dollars, as well as the municipal dollars. This is the type of thing then that, while it might not deliver an economic benefit per se, it'll allow all of these things that probably need to happen in the next 10 to 20 years anyway to happen in the next five to seven years because the games are in 2030. And that moves that timetable forward and it allows it to happen then in probably a less contentious way than if we were to debate them on a topic-to-topic basis, much as the way that we're eight years into arguing about the Saddle Dome replacement. <laughs> so true. Okay, so as a sports fan, I would think most people are like, yeah, let's do it. But as an economist, after listing all those things, do you think it's, it economically makes sense to do it in order to get some of these projects rolling? So as a sports fan myself, I would say yes. I would love to see the Commonwealth Games. And as a Calgary resident and as an Edmonton resident, I'd love to see them happen. So I'm in favor of it from the sports angle. From an economics angle, the actual act of hosting the Games themselves, it's not that great a deal. Uh, The Commonwealth Games are not on a level with the Olympics and the World Cup, but they involve costs that are roughly similar to the Olympics or the World Cup because you need all of these large venues and these infrastructure projects that need to take place similar to the way that you would with the Olympics or the World Cup. Now, conceivably in Calgary and Edmonton, you could make use with McMahon Stadium, Commonwealth Stadium, the Saddle Dome, Rogers Centre. It's all already there. But if you're going to put the games on, you want to make all of these things look nice. And Rogers Centre is the newest by far Mm -hmm. of any of the main venues. So in terms of the economic cost, it's going to substantially outweigh the economic benefits. But these infrastructure projects need to take place anyway. So we may as well go for the games and uh, in that sense, then the economic benefits are the feds will now get involved and help us pay for these infrastructure projects. And that's what I wanted to ask you. So we've got, we get federal money. We would no doubt get provincial money. Where does the rest of the money come from? Well, unfortunately, it is going to fall on the taxpayers. But the reality is that those projects are going to fall on the taxpayers one way or the other. So Calgary taxpayers are going to have to pay for green line development and for blue line expansion and when the Saddle Dome deal is eventually done, that's going to fall at least in part on Calgary taxpayers. Edmonton, of course, is going to look at their LRT expansion and uh, maybe a replacement for Commonwealth Stadium themselves, and that's going to fall on Edmonton taxpayers. So at least what's happening here is that part of the burden is being shifted onto other dollars. And so you could say that as an Albertan, hey, we're paying provincial taxes anyway, so isn't it falling on us? Yes, but now we have Lethbridge, Fort McMurray, Medicine Hat, Red Deer chipping in as well. And we have the other major cities in Canada that are chipping in as well through federal tax dollars. So it does defray some of the cost for Calgary and Edmonton residents, at least. Interesting text that says the only thing that saved many of the Olympic Games has been, and that includes the 88 uh, Olympics, says Josie, was a huge American television revenue, the advertising. And we certainly won't be getting that with Commonwealth 2030. So, you know, does she have a point there? Or is that important? Or is it really more about the infrastructure that we can potentially get going in the city and in Edmonton as well? So they're not correct. Okay. Uh, most of that money does not filter down to the host city. That money would go to the IOC or it'd go to FIFA in the case of World Cup, and it's not going to actually be seen on the ground in the host city. So it, that, that's not really going to be the difference maker here. And fine, the Americans aren't interested in participating in the Commonwealth Games, uh, but the reality is that, that that's a, such a small part of the revenue base anyway in these particular games that it's not really a, a factor whether we should or should not. Very interesting conversation. So would you say then, uh, you know, take your your, uh, professor hat off. Are you in favor? You think we should go ahead with it? 
Yeah, I was against the Calgary 2026 because I just couldn't see any way to making that back. But a shared bid, which is the way the future of all of these big events, this is the way to go. And so the fact that it's Calgary and Edmonton together, they're so close, uh, and they have a lot in common in terms of what they need in, in the form of infrastructure. Yeah, let's go for it. And uh, I, I have a feeling that the benefits in terms of infrastructure will be justified in the long run. Thank you so much, Moshe. Appreciate your time this morning. Anytime. Thanks, Moshe Lander, economics professor at Concordia University. You can certainly weigh in your thoughts on this. Should we be going for it in Alberta? I'm always a, a yay in terms of bringing big events into the city whenever possible because, as uh, Stephen said, you know, I want to see Calgary, this is his text, I want to see Calgary grow on the world stage. The world needs to discover more to Calgary and establish business here. Just look at the most incredible playground to the West. Affordable homes, reasonable cost of living. So, yes, I support the games. I was in favor of the Olympic bid as well. We need more, not less of this. I feel like after chatting with Moshe, I'm in favor of this as well. I think it's good that, you know, if we can um, break the cost down city city and get the province involved, get the feds involved, maybe we can get some of these projects taken care of that we've been waiting so long for here in the city of Calgary specifically. Very interesting for sure. You can let me know your thoughts. Are you in favor of this after listening to Moshe? You can let me know at 403-974-8255. I just wanted to touch on this because it was kind of um, links to something that Moshe talked about. We've forever been talking about a, a high-speed train link between Calgary and Edmonton. Of late, there's been a lot of chat about a high-speed train link between Calgary and Banff, for example. Well, here, this is a place where it's actually happening down in the United States. Construction beginning this year on a $10 billion high-speed rail from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. This project is expected to start late in 2023, open in 2027. It would make it the first high-speed rail system in the U.S. and built just in time for Los Angeles and the 2028 Summer Olympic Games. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Uh, that would be pretty Who doesn't want to go to Vegas, too? But you certainly don't want to take a car there, I would imagine, if you were an American. Anyway, it'll be um, a train that'll travel up to 322 kilometers per hour. Total route distance... 351k and uh it'll be of course in vegas the stop uh, for the train will be located conveniently right near the strip sounds like a pretty cool idea if you were living in Calgary back in 2009, you knew there was a gang war regularly topping the headlines. A lot of concern about gun violence in our city then. And that's the focus of the new episode of Crime Beat Podcast with Global's senior crime reporter, Nancy Hickst. And Nancy joins us now to talk about it. Hi, Nancy. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me this morning. Thank you for joining us. It's such a great podcast. I know people love true crime and yours delivers all of it. I was listening to the uh, first episode, uh, the one that you sent me that we're going to talk about this morning, and it's literally, you know, hits home very close for a lot of Calgarians, right, this story? Yeah, like this gang war started early 2000s. You know, you were saying in, in 2009, it really was in the spotlight, and that's because there was an innocent person that was killed. But the beginnings of this war really began in the early 2000s. And it started with, you know, a group of friends that had a falling out. Like, it's hard to believe that any falling out could get this mm-hmm. extreme. But it ended up dividing into two sides and very quickly uh, escalated to where not only did they have a hate for each other, but they, they were hunting each other. Um, and, and this resulted in a number of very public executions. So, you know, if you remember uh, back then in Calgary, there was homicides happening at 
strip malls, uh, you know, in the middle of ro- busy roadways, you know, in a gas station mm-hmm. parking lot. Like these were very public um, homicides and they were also adding up to be unsolved because police had a, a really hard time uh, finding people who were willing to speak about the crimes and they were pretty smart uh, with forensic evidence. So it, it was a very frustrating time and it escalated to the point uh, where there were a number of people caught in the crossfire. And of course, most people know the triple homicide at the Bolsa restaurant on New Year's Day 2009 as the, the biggest example of that. Now, I know this is season five, correct, of your yes. Crime Beat podcast. And this this one that we're talking about, is it's the, the series is called Crossfire. And this was the first episode you released, but episode four of season five, right? Yes, uh, this is the Crossfire is episode four and five. It's a two-part series. Um, we began this season uh, sharing a story. Uh, if you, if I can explain it, because it's a fascinating story, mm-hmm. and it was amazing meeting these people. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a shooting that happened west of the city, and it was. I remember when the call came in, everybody was thinking, like, was this related to the gang war? Could this be? you know, a targeted shooting. Um, and as things began, come, uh, come to light for us as, as we were covering it, we realized that it was a German tourist, someone visiting Canada, driving through the Rocky Mountains, just wanting to, you know, take in the amazing scenery that we have, um, ends up getting shot. And it was a complete mistaken identity, but it's, it, you know, led to just nonstop uh, problems for this poor family. Um, and the man that was shot has long lasting injuries. Uh, he'll never fully recover, though he is a very determined man. I was able to meet him. Uh, he came here with his son, uh, son in the summer and I sat down with them and it's just an amazing story of survival. So that was our, uh, season premiere episode. Um, against a lot. And you know, that's what I love about Crime Beat is, yes, you know, maybe people who were living here, for example, in 2009 with all this gun, gun violence, they would remember these stories. But for people who are new to the city and know nothing about it, and even those who live through it, you give them so much of the backstory. When you talked about those two gangs, once being friends, there was a lot of detail about that. And I had no idea. And I, I kind of live in this news world. So I love that about Crime Beat. There's a lot of backstory. There's a lot of info that we would never have gathered and heard about otherwise that make these stories that much more riveting, right? Yeah, and we always try to uh, come at it, obviously, from a, from a crime reporter's perspective, because I was covering these stories. But also, we want to give a voice to the victims and their families. So th- that's very important in all of these episodes. And as we go into part two of the crossfire uh, that'll be coming out in a uh, couple weeks, um, we'll explain what happened in the gang war and take you up to present day. And I think it's going to be surprising for a lot of people because I think the perception has been that, um, you know, this thing settled down. Uh, But there's been a number of homicides that have happened since then. And we also explain the unique police strategies uh, that happened. And, you know, it's really amazing to go into the detail of how much work the police put into this and some of the deals that were made, because in the end, um, they needed a way to to stop the violence, to stop these public executions. Um, and so there were some very unprecedented deals that were made with some of those people involved. 
in in these gangs. It's fascinating. Before we let you go, I want to ask you, you know, you've covered you covered all these stories. There therefore you're able to to really, you know, dig into the stories and, and present them on Crime Beat. What's that do to you? Are you able to compartmentalize this kind of stuff? I mean, I think all people who work uh, in news have a certain way of compartmentalizing. And, you know, it's my job to share these stories in a compelling way. Um, so that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm focused on. And uh, this series, The Crossfire, is uh, part of our documentary series on global television as well. So the I, I, I'm working on both platforms. So if people want to see... Um, a slightly different version of the story. Obviously, all the facts are the same, but we share stories differently on each platform. Uh, They can also watch uh, that documentary, and they can watch it online on YouTube, or they can watch it on globaltv.com. Just search for Crime Beat TV. And Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all your favorite uh, podcast platforms. Thank you so much for joining us. You do a great job. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate it. Nancy Hicks, crime reporter for Global News and host of Crime Beat. 